there's 5 million kids that die every single year of things that we can prevent. We want every child to have a high quality basic education and learn to read and write and have basic you know, math skills. And we want to protect kids from harm, which is a lot of our emergency work. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted. This episode features Save the Children CEO, Carolyn Miles, in conversation with Professor Kirsten Gelsdorf of UVA's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. In this podcast, they will discuss the role of women in the developing world and the ability of women and girls to change the trajectory of a country's development toward a more equal and democratic society. There's a story that you have talked about and have written about um, when you were at a stoplight in the Philippines um, and how that experience kind of changed the trajectory of your life into one on to working in humanitarian aid. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Well, um, first of all, thanks. Thanks for yeah. doing this with me. It's great. And thanks to Laura for, for setting it all up. Um, and some of you might have heard this story before, but I, I think there's always, I think for people who go into this work, um, there's always kind of a, a moment mm-hmm. or a time period that really kind of, you know, pushes your path in that direction. And <clears throat> for me, it was, so I, after Darden, I uh, went to work for American Express and had the opportunity to go to Asia um, with Amex on a program where they kind of took a couple people and sent them somewhere in the world. And so, um, and I uh, met and married a Darden grad. Mm-hmm. So we were going together and um, he followed me on, on that yeah. particular move. <laughs> and uh, we traveled all over the place. We had two of our children. We have three kids. We had two of our kids when we were in Hong Kong. And um, that's where we were based. And we traveled everywhere because we thought, okay, yeah. you know, when are we going to get there? And there was one particular trip and we were on vacation and we were driving from the airport in Manila into the city into Makati, which is the major uh, place in uh, Manila, the major part of the city. And when you drive along that road, it's lined with slums, very, very uh, deep, dire slums, I would describe them. And every time you stop at a stoplight, and there's many stoplights between the time you leave the airport and when you get to the city, uh, people come to to the car and beg. Yeah. at the at the car windows and i was sitting in the back seat with my then 6 month maybe 8 month old son patrick um and a woman came up to the window and she had a baby in her arms and i had patrick in my arms and we looked at each other through the window and you know there was just something for me about that moment that was so um intensely unfair, I guess, because this woman, you know, she was obviously very poor. This baby was obviously unhealthy. Um, and I was sitting there with a completely healthy baby. And the only difference between my baby and the baby she held was this baby was born to this really poor woman who came from, you know, a shanty that was right there next to the road. And my, you know, son was born to two very well-educated Darden graduate you know, parents who were going to be able to do, you know, anything. And I'll tell you about where he is now uh, in a little bit. But, you know, that to me was just this real injustice that it was about who you were born to and where you were born. It didn't really have anything else to do with anything. And that um, 
I decided if there was something that I could do with all the, you know, experience and knowledge that I had to try to change that, that that's what I wanted to try to do. And so I started doing work in Hong Kong with um, unwed mothers, actually, an organization that was there. And then when we came back to the United States, I started looking for an organization and talked to lots of different people, um, UNICEF and others that were working with children and a Darden grad knew somebody at Save the Children and said, go talk to Save the Children. And that was 22, almost 22 years ago. So, but there is this moment, I think, in a lot of people's lives when they realize there's something else that I really want to be able to do. And so how long was it from that moment? Because I'm wondering if some of you might be thinking like, oh, I feel like I've had that moment and am I about to change a trajectory or, you know, like, was it, you went home that night and you kind of like, you or it kind of stayed with you and you couldn't really move it out of your mind. And then it kind of transitioned into these engagements in Hong Kong and then on? Was it, it was kind this of a, feeling that there was go. something that I needed to do. Yeah. I guess that's what it felt like. Yeah. That's the only way I can describe it. Something I needed to do and and there was another thing that I could yeah. be doing. And then, you know, part of it was fate. I, you know, found this person that Darden yeah. who knew somebody at Save the Children. Yeah. They had a job that was very relevant to what I had done at American yeah. Express. And um, so, you know, sometimes it's also fate takes you in those, yeah. those pathways. But, so but now, I would say yeah. you need to follow that feeling. Right. That's, a, that's it, the question. If it stays with you, you right? Really then you really do need to follow it somehow. So then taking you kind of a couple decades later, right? <laughs> right. A couple decades <laughs> later, yes. Um, you you know, one of the, the topic we have for tonight is kind of twofold, right? And so the, the first part is, you know, the challenges that women and girls face around the world. Um, I read your blog, um, Logging Miles, which I would recommend to all of you, especially my students in the back. Um, It's incredible. And, you know, in there you have this one blog and you said in it, um, by the time it takes you to read this blog, another 45 girls right under the age of 18 will have gotten married and will most likely have um, children too early and, you know, be trapped in a, in a cycle of poverty, um, and inequity. And so, you know, that's just one example, but Save the Children works in over 120 countries, including the U.S. And I was hoping you could share with the audience a couple of examples of kind of the challenges that women and girls face around the world. Sure. Well, we, you know, we've been working with girls and mothers yeah. in most of the programs we do are with, with moms um, because they're the, they have the biggest influence, obviously, on children's lives. So we've been doing that for a very long time, but it really wasn't until probably the last five years or so. One of the things that saved the children uh, we really committed ourselves to was we want to, so we have three goals. We yeah. want to end the deaths of kids under five from uh-huh. preventable causes. And there's 5 million kids that die every single year of things that we can prevent. We want every child to have a high quality basic education mm-hmm. and learn to read and write and have basic you know, math skills. And we want to protect kids from harm, which is a lot of our emergency work. Yeah. And so we said, and we won't do that by ourselves, right? There will be many, many people who will do that with us. But we said, what is it that Save the Children is uniquely able to do? And because we work in 120 countries and we have 25,000 people around the world that work for Save the Children, we said what we could do was we could reach the most left behind kids in the countries where we worked. 
And so we looked at who were those children. Mm -hmm. And in many countries, it's girls, right? If Mm -hmm. you look at who are the, you know, are girls dying at a higher rate than boys are under the age of five in many countries? Yes. Are girls getting through elementary school and learning to read and write and have basic math skills? No. Are girls protected from harm during emergencies or crises or wars? No. So we said that is a group of children that we really need. If we're going to be successful in those three goals that we talked about, we really have to do a even deeper focus on girls. And so we started looking at the work that we do in every country and saying, how do we actually make sure that every program we do, first of all, that we look at the differences between boys and girls. So what are the differences in a preschool program that we have to do at preschool to make sure that girls get off on the right, in the right start? What do we have to do in our basic education programs? And if you look at, there's a lot of really good things that are happening in education for girls. But when I first went to visit Save the Children programs, you would go to a first grade and you'd see a hundred kids. And it would be a chaotic classroom and there'd be one teacher and the kids were all over the floor, but there were 50 girls and 50 boys, right? And then you went to the second grade and there were like 75 kids and maybe there were 30 girls and 45 boys. By the time you got to the fifth grade, there were 20 kids and there were two girls, right? So the girls just never made it through that that basic education because they were pulled out of school because they had to stay home and take care of other kids because they, you know, their parents didn't have enough for school fees and the boys were the ones who were prioritized over the girls because when they got older and they started to have their periods, there were no bathrooms, Mm -hmm. right? There was a whole bunch of different reasons why girls didn't stay in school, but that really is getting a lot better. But you have to really dig in and say, why, why is that happening? And what do you, what yeah. do you have to do differently? So that's the flip side, right? And yep. the other part of the, the question um, that we wanted to get into, it's kind of, so what are some of those investments, right? Yep. Is it, you know, is it data? Is it policy? Is it investment? Like, what are, the, yep. what are some of the things that, you, that you've yep. seen? So it depends on the problem, Um, but we'll maybe look at uh, early marriage as a a really good example. So as you mentioned, you know, there are millions of girls who are married under the age of 18 and then many, many under the age of 15. And for Save the Children, that's a really important issue because there's a couple of reasons. One, for that girl likely ends her education. She will drop out of school at the age of 13. She will likely have a baby when she's 14 she is likely to have a much tougher pregnancy at 14 you know than she would if she waited till she was 19 that baby is less likely to be healthy more likely to be premature and the whole Cycle thing continues. starts yeah. again so ending that practice of child marriage is really one of our key priorities and that's first it's about policy so the countries actually have a a law that says it's illegal for girls to be married under 18 Many countries in the world have a law. Bangladesh has a law. You're not allowed to be married under the age of 18. Yet 60% of the girls in Mm -hmm. Bangladesh are married under the age of 18. So then there's all sorts of ways that, you know, parents say it's okay if your parents come, et cetera. What it really is about is it's about changing the way people value girls 
right? And changing the way families think about girls versus boys. And you really have to really work at the community level and try to change people's beliefs. And that is not easy. And the only way you're going to do that is by having local people who live in those communities who work with, who are either Save the Children people or partners that Save the Children works with, who work with the communities to show them and talk to them about why that actually doesn't have to be that way and why girls can have as much value as boys. The other thing that's worked really well is empowering girls themselves. Right. So I was in a program in India about a year ago visiting these very remote areas in India with young girls who were, you know, basically helped to talk about this issue with their parents and had different role playing that they did with each other. And then enlisted the helps of help of their brothers, of their teachers, of all Mm -hmm. sorts of people in the community and had those conversations. And I remember a young girl and I was talking to her about, well, how did you, like, what was the conversation like yeah. with your father? And she yeah. said, well, you know, we sat down and I was really nervous, but I had talked to my mom and my mom was really supportive. And I said to my father, you know, I really want to stay in school. I was, she said, I was like top of my class. Yeah. There was no reason I couldn't go on to secondary school. I really want to stay in school. And by the way, you know, I'm a lot smarter than my brother yeah. sitting here yeah. and I can actually contribute to this family. If you let me stay in school, I guarantee yeah. you I'll do better than he will. And yeah. I'll be the one yeah. who's going to help the family. And she was kind of laughing while she was doing it, yeah. but you know, it was, yeah. that was part of her argument and she was a much better student yeah. than her brother was. And so she was able to convince her family that, yeah, this was a, a worthwhile investment to make. So if you can't do it on the kind of moral grounds right. of, you know, you should yeah. give your girls and yeah. your boys equal chance, do it, use an investment argument, right? Lots of different arguments. So we help right. kids make those arguments for themselves. So. And you, um, you know, in the title of this talk also had even talked about like, if, if we make these investments, right. And I think at that, you know, individual level, household level, community level, yeah country level, regional level, global level, um, it can even, you know, change the trajectory of countries, right? So that we can actually promote democracy and equity, you know, by these little steps. So tell us a little bit more about that and like how that jump happens. So great example, I would say is Rwanda. Okay. So Mm -hmm. obviously there's a very sad history in Rwanda with the genocide, but Coming out of that horrible event, there were a lot of really positive things that have happened. And that country has really made huge progress against, you know, the sustainable development goals, what we call the sustainable development goals, which is the UN and the world's 17 goals, which include ending preventable deaths of kids under five and every child gets a basic education, et cetera. And they've made tremendous progress. And one of the things that Rwanda did was they said, we are going to drive um, from the, the top down and the bottom up, we're going to drive empowerment of women. That is going to be a super important part of what we do as a country. So they did things like they, they actually set quotas for the uh-huh. parliament. And if you look at the number of women in parliament today and you go and Google it, Rwanda's at the top, 61%. Uh-huh. Of, so we think 23.5% in Congress is right. great. <laughs> 
it's yeah, it's not that great. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. It's yeah. better. I know, we know. But yeah. Rwanda is sixty-one percent yeah. of their parliament is with us, awesome. and it has completely changed the trajectory of that country because right. when you put women in positions of power, they pass laws and make policies that are going to bring about equality in a society. And particularly if those are very unequal societies, they will really be working towards that goal. So they did that at the top. So that makes a huge difference. Then they invested a lot. And, and you know, I give the U.S. government actually a lot of credit. They invested in Rwanda in a, in a yeah. big program in women's empowerment. Um, and this was about getting women to be able to start small businesses. Right. It was about making sure that more girls got through secondary school. So those kinds of programs that were really community-driven, so you're driving it from the bottom, you're driving it from the top, and that's an example of a country that's just you know, really completely transformed itself yeah. from those very dark days of, you know, really uh, a horrible event to, you know, tremendous progress there. And, and one of the places where Save the Children still works there, but much smaller, you know, we yeah. don't have to do as much work yeah. anymore because the, the government and the country and the people there have taken over and really turned that country around. So that's a, that's a really that's a great good case. example. So there's many uh, reasons why I admire you, but one of the reasons I, I also really like you is because of just the story you just told. I mean, I've, I've seen you speak um, twice before. So, um, so I spent my career at the United Nations, for most of you um, who didn't know. And so I saw um, Carolyn speak at the United Nations Humanitarian Policy Forum we started. And, um, and then I saw you speak at Batten a couple of years ago. And, you know, in both of those talks, you know, usually when you hear leaders of humanitarian organizations talk about humanitarian crisis, it's, it's you know, it's so, um, it's just so many stories of despair and, um, you know, need outstripping. And it's just this consistent kind of giving all the statistics, right? You know, we only get 40% of the mm -hmm. funding that we need for humanitarian aid every year. So we're starting from a place of triage. Right now, there's 36 crises happening all over the world that are at, I would say, the complexity of Syria, but you never hear about them in the news and on and on and on. But what you do and what you did is you kind of give these positive case studies, right? Just like, just like the two examples you just gave. And you give hope and I think you show progress. And that's very compelling to me because... Now that I teach this material, you know, I get always students at the end of the semester saying also they feel a lot of despair or, and it's so hard to go out and find these positive examples. And so I always really appreciate within your leadership and even in your blog, you know, you fold in all of these positives. And so I guess my question is like, are you an optimist or like, do you, do yeah. you have hope? You know, mm. do you think that there's progress yeah. to be made? And I guess my question is on both levels, like one, in terms of the trajectories you're seeing, and then two, in the field of humanitarian aid and yes. aid work. Like, you know, yeah. Are you an optimist about both? Do you stand behind both? Yeah. How do you feel? Well, I, I mean, I think, and you would know this from, and Kirsten is an expert, by the way. Oh. So she really <laughs> is. Um, but you actually, you really have to be a glass half full person. Yeah. Right. To be in this work. I mean, you really do have to yeah. see. The progress. I, I think the other thing for me, having done this for so long, having yeah. been at Save the Children for, you know, almost 22 years, you actually see the progress. So yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you another story about visiting um, Malawi 
Okay. So, and Malawi was a country that I went to visit, probably one of the first countries that I went to visit uh-huh. to save the children. So way back in the late 90s, right? right? Mm-hmm. I went to visit our programs there and it was an education program. Uh-huh. And that was where I saw that first grade looks like this, second grade looks yeah. like this, third grade, fifth yeah. grade, right? So I just went back to Malawi last year. And we were there to open two secondary schools, uh-huh. right? So that's like eighth grade to 12th grade. And um, they were 50% boys and 50% girls, right? Nice. So that's from 20 years yeah. ago when you could get two girls into the fifth grade right. to 20 years later, yeah. you can get 50% into eighth grade through 12th grade. And we did a, we did a, um, a big uh, event with the first lady of Malawi. And so she came with us to go to open these secondary schools yeah. and she did this fabulous. So there were two speeches. One was hers uh-huh. and she talked about early marriage and she, there were like 2000 people there mm. to open these schools, all the people from the communities. And she basically said, and she did it in local language, obviously. And yeah. she said, you know, there is no reason. And Malawi has a very high rate of early marriage. And right. she said, there's no reason you need to marry your girls at 13 or 14. Mm. Look, at these schools yeah. where they can go, look at what they can do, think about the things they can do. So just stop doing that. So that was one speech, yeah. and which was fantastic. And the second speech was a 15-year-old girl yeah. who gave a speech in both English and local language, flawless English. And she basically said, she, she talked a lot about education and what, how great it was. And then she said, you know, I'm here with the first lady, which is great but I'm going to actually be the president. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great that the first lady's here, but I'm actually going to So be I'm actually so. going to be the CEO of Save the Children. How's that? <laughs> that would be fine too. I would have said, sure, go for it. So, um, so there are lots of good, there are lots a lot of, of good stories. And you can I, see I the so progress too. over the time. Yeah, that's the, that's I think the so too. I mean, I, I think I challenged so some of you guys in one of my classes. I said, you know, here's a, all the data from 2017 or 2018. Find me the positives in here. Just dig in there, you know, and that's what I think is really important, especially in a world where we're just fed so much despair and yeah. so much negativity. So, yeah. so thank you for doing that. Um, so this is also a leadership series. So I was hoping we could ask you a couple of leadership questions. Um, so your journey. So you were also the first female CEO. And so one thing I was just thinking as you were talking is, do you think that being a woman or a female and being the first female CEO to save the children also pushed you in a trajectory to see some of these mm-hmm. issues maybe more than, yes. you know, not to say that a predecessor didn't, but it's kind yep. of that you, you felt that or... Yeah, no, I do think I do think you feel that, um, and you know, save the children uh, has changed a lot yeah, from the time that I've been there. Yeah. So the board, for example, when I first came, I think our board was maybe maybe thirty percent women. It's now fifty fifty. Nice. Actually, it might be even fifty five forty five wow. women uh-huh. versus men. So you know, there's a lot of change. Yeah. The organization has actually yeah. become more uh, have more women employees. So the field has changed. But I think it does give you, as a mother, too, yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. You kind of see these things and you yeah. think, okay, well, right. you know, it's all about how do we empower these mothers to change the, you know, change their, the lives of their children? What right. can we do to right. help these mothers actually change that trajectory? And particularly in the United States, a lot of our work in the U.S., our initial work is a home visiting program that visits very poor moms at home with, and a lot of times it's yeah. teenage mothers yeah. or young mothers yeah. who have very little support. 
And it's teaching them how to be their child's best yeah. first teacher, right? Yeah. And prepare them yeah. for school Early. and get them on that path. And they're living in really rural, isolated places in Kentucky and Tennessee and yeah. Arkansas. And it's about, and being a mom, you just yeah. think you relate to those things. And, you know, I mean, fathers would relate to them too. I yeah. mean, and we, yeah. you know, we bring, we bring people to see those programs all the time. And, and you can understand how difficult it is living in those circumstances, but also how much it can be changed without, you right. know, without a lot. Right. So, so what are some other things like that, that kind of in this leadership journey or in these 20, that have, have surprised you, you know, mm. or have really challenged you? Yeah. So both as a leader and kind of, and in this field, like what's something you've either learned about yourself yeah. or learned about leadership or yeah. learned about others? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, I mean, the nonprofit space is interesting. It's very different than the corporate world. Okay. And, um, and I think I had to learn a lot about how to navigate that. Yeah space when I came. It's very, like, I can say to my team, like, hey, let's go do this. And they'll be like, uh, maybe. <laughs> we might go do that. I don't know. And then they'll go off and they'll be like, we'll go look at it and we'll do some, you know, thinking yeah. and talking and then we'll come back to you and let you know kind of okay. thing. Yeah. They're like, like okay. Idea. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of consensus right. building. There's a lot of right. uh, getting different groups to kind right. of buy in. And, and you also have to be very cognizant of, you know, these are resource constrained Environments, environments yeah. right? Yeah. So piling stuff on top without saying to people, you have the permission to stop doing that other thing over there. Yeah. That is, you really do have to do that. That's really, I think, important for people because uh, because people generally will say yes. They may not say yes yeah. right away, but they probably will come back and say, okay, okay. yes, we're going to do. And then, so if you don't give people the ability to kind of take those things yeah. away, that is important. And then, you know, the unknownness of emergencies. Yeah. Right. And you know, this, mm -hmm. you know, we don't plan at the beginning of the year yeah. for any yeah. emergencies, right? right? We, but yet we know that every year, at least even in a low emergency year, 30% of our work will be humanitarian right. work that we didn't plan at the beginning of the year. Right. And in a big disaster yeah. year, it'll be 50% yeah. of our work will be emergencies and you don't plan it. You don't have people sitting around waiting for right. it right? You have to figure out how right. are you going to be prepared and how, how are you going to do that? So the, the ability to, and I don't think in business, you know, there aren't many businesses that kind of are that agile. Yeah. know that 30% yeah. of their work is going to you yeah. know, spring upon them and yeah. it's nothing that they've really planned for. So, so that I think has really been surprising to me. I don't know what I, I don't know how I thought it worked before. Yeah. I guess I didn't really think about it, but, um, it, it really is, you know, get, you have to be prepared. You have to do a lot of preparation. Right. You have to have things ready, but you really can't, you know, we can't afford to have people just kind of sitting around waiting to, for something to maybe happen. We have to figure out ways that we position things yeah. and people. And then you have to, there are some things you'll have to stop doing if it's a really, you know, huge disaster and, and you get lots of partners and you have people that are yeah. not, you know, working for Save the Children that you've already kind of 
said, hey, if this happens, we're going to bring you in. But then it's also complicated, right? It's not just, oh, I didn't know there was going to be in the Bahamas, or I didn't know there was going to be an earthquake or or border or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, I think, then the policy issues associated with those crises, right? Every crisis has a whole different set of complexities. And so, you know, you're... And so how do you build, you know, you have to build those teams and find those expertise and make policy on the fly and figure out new partnerships and all of those things. So, I mean, I think that's why it's the best field in the world, I would argue, because I think it's the most interesting problems that you get to dig into. Um, And what I think is exciting also and why I'm really excited that um, you went to Darden and we're doing this event and, you know, I'm here from Batten and is that it seems as though it's a field that is in my opinion, has really changed and opened its mm. doors to a lot of different kinds of backgrounds. Yep. And, um, you know, I teach a large undergraduate class that now has about 200 students in it. It's Intro yep. to Humanitarian Aid. And I, on purpose, try to keep it open to the whole university because I want the engineers and I want the nurses yep. and I want the psychologists and the French majors. And because of this exact issue that you never know yep. what's going to happen. But so, but the a question I get a lot is, um, do I need to get a graduate degree in international relations mm. to do this kind of work? Mm. Or is it okay if I go to business school yep. or should I get a law degree? You know, so what are the different, um, so how, what is your advice on those trajectories? Because, yeah. you know, I, uh, my position is always humanitarian aid needs this, yes. but is it harder to kind of make yeah. those trajectories? And if it is kind of, you know, what, what's your advice around that? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I guess I'm an example of somebody who, you know, came in from business school. Um, But I think it is, um, it's it's really dependent on a couple of different paths, I would say. Some people go right out of undergrad and they go work in the field and they come through that, doing that work, Mm -hmm. either at the Peace Corps or they have a language skill where they just go to Mm -hmm. the country and say, you know, I'm just going to figure out how to do it. And if you have a good language, language skill... And you seem to be somebody who can kind yeah. of roll with the punches. <laughs> you know, sometimes that is that is kind of what you need to do. Um, and then other people will come in with business degrees, law degrees, engineering degrees. Yeah. And there, I think it's it probably is much more likely to happen with a big organization, right? Who yeah. is able to take in more of those kinds of skill sets right. into a, you know a little organization will be harder, I think, to come in. In, yeah. that, in that middle, you know, after a couple of years of experience. I think it's easier with larger organizations who are looking for those skill sets. They're looking for engineers. They're looking to, you know, look at, okay, we're setting up the, the logistics behind yeah. all of this or logistics experts, right? right? I mean, humanitarian response is a lot of logistics, yeah. right? How do we get stuff from here to there and right. people from here to there? And, right. You know, how are we going to get to this place that's only accessible by boats? And, yeah. So there's a lot of logistics there. So I, I don't think there's one path. Right. And I don't think you need to go get an international relationship. Right, degree. I agree. I do think you have to be resourceful. I think you have to be persistent. Yep. Um, it is not an easy field to kind of break into. You have to be looking at what's out there yep. and ways that you can get engaged and get into an organization and, um, and get involved. Yeah, so okay. I think it's, it's not one path, I don't think. Yeah, few because otherwise no. well, giving the wrong advice. But yeah. no, that's that's my and I always okay, say good. too. It's like it needs you, right? Mm-hmm. There's not going to be corporate work. No one's going to recruit you at yeah. UVA necessarily. It's going to be challenging. Yeah. Or if they do recruit you, then go find out where in those organizations 
they're somehow engaged in philanthropy, or you can pick up a skill like logistics or monitoring and evaluation or something like that. That is then that crosses over. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is, and what I think worked for me in making that jump from the corporate world to the nonprofit world is you need to come with the value of skill, right? Don't think that, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I really want to do this and I'm really smart and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I, people come to me all the time. I'll do whatever you want to do, want me to do. I'm like, I don't want you to do whatever you want to, what I want you to do. I want you to do the thing you're really good at. Like I need people who are good HR people. I need people who are good finance people. I need people who are good logistics people. Right. Yeah. So take the skill set that you have and then look at for organizations that need that skill set and, you know, try to plug in to that. that And I would add though, that I also would say that I do hope that then you also then still, it's not a, it's not a volunteer job, right? You still need to understand the ethics and the history and the challenges because the consequences are huge. So kind of folding those two things together. Leadership Unscripted is a Darden speaker series hosted at UVA Darden, D.C. Metro in Arlington, Virginia. To learn more, visit us at darden.virginia.edu.